Beyond Infinity. Next guest here on Lockdown Radio, our intrepid COVID-19 reporter is Piers Cunningham. Been having a look at some of the big numbers, also having a look at some of the fundamentals and some of the policies that underwrite and some of the numbers that underwrite some of the policies. Piers Cunningham, good morning. Welcome. Morning, Brendan. Another big week, Piers. And yet, uh, well, interestingly, uh, these... um, Tests are certainly getting a little bit of attention at the moment. The elimination policy as well. And, of course, contact tracing is something that you've been having a look at. That's right. So uh, a really a good number today, and uh, we're doing better than New South Wales for a change. Although, as the Premier has pointed out in his uh, presses recently, there's still more, quite a few more active cases. I think something like four times the number of active cases in Victoria. And that, uh, to the Premier, is justification for continuing with the level of lockdown that we've got. Although, hopefully, we'll see some revision of that uh, uh, come Sunday. This coming Sunday, there's supposed to be some announces, announcements, and uh, people may have heard that one of them is that we may be getting uh, the luxury of being able to travel, uh, say, 20 kilometres from where we live rather than the five that we're allowed now. Does that mean that we'll be able to have a coffee together some stages soon, uh, Piers Cunningham? We, we, could, we could meet in the middle, Brendan. We could, because since you're way down south. Um, yes. Interesting, I mean, here we are, New South Wales versus Vic, and we've seen this sort of, as you just have, this comparison of numbers as well. Contact tracing up in New South Wales seems to me to be a little bit more efficient than down here. Is that the case, or is that just uh, me drawing incorrect conclusions? No, I think that that is the case, and there's a lot of, uh, I think, justified concern about uh, contact tracing in Victoria. They did send a team uh, from the Victorian Health Department up to New South Wales to learn from what they've done, because don't forget, they had a cruise ship full of people, uh, very strangely and um, almost ludicrously unloaded into the middle of Sydney without checking back in March, April, the Ruby Princess, uh, and yet they got on top of that, and that was a clear signal that their contact tracing was working well. They use a decentralised system uh, up in, in New South Wales. It sounds like it was better funded before coronavirus, so Victoria's been going through several years of cutbacks in the health system and funding, uh, whereas in New South Wales they had a better decentralised system as well as a central hub where data was fed back to. But the benefit of being decentralised was that you had people who were embedded there who were contact tracing who knew the lie of the land. So they knew the cultural makeup of a, an area, they knew the geography of it, uh, and they had contacts in the business community, community leaders, local government, and so on, that allowed them to get on top of things very quickly. So they, and, and again, when they had the, that uh, hotel where a truck driver from Victoria went up and, and gave them a bit of a, a flutter a couple of months ago, at, at a pub and then people who'd been in contact with him, that, that also was, was suppressed and controlled very quickly in New South Wales. Whereas in Victoria, we've not seen such success. And Shepparton, in, in, in you know, the last couple of days, uh, I think is a, a cause for concern because there's a, an outbreak there. It came from the contact that lived with someone who was in a, a cluster that was in a meatworks in Melbourne. They travelled up as a... I think they were telling, selling tyres, so they were allowed to travel with their job. From, out, from within Melbourne out to, to regional Victoria. But the restriction, if they'd stuck to it, was that they didn't do anything apart from what, you know, go to business meetings. If they were to get food or something, it had to be takeaway, minimal use. They weren't allowed to go into cafes. They weren't allowed to do all that. And sure enough, this person did. And they didn't give full and complete information uh, initially to traces. And so that delayed the 
clampdown and the and the introduction of uh, pop-up testing centres in Shepparton. Uh, and this is all vital. So getting getting to the bottom of where people have been, obviously someone knows they're breaking the rules, then they may be uh, reluctant to fess up. And there have been examples of this. You know, there's, I mean, there's people examples cited of, you know, people who may be, you know, using illegal drugs, maybe shooting up heroin or something like that. They don't want to say, oh, that was what I was doing with that person because it's admitting to a crime. But unfortunately, that's, that interferes with the work of contact tracing. It does indeed. Um, I would say that the other caveat that you could put around the Ruby Princess as well was that New South Wales went straight to the ADF for assistance there to tidy it up and also look after security in the hotel. Absolutely. And that is something that our Premier is being drilled about, uh, exactly that decision to not use the offer of assistance of ADF personnel back in March and, uh, in fact, offer... A, a very juicy $30 million contract to a company, I think it's called United Security, yep. and they were not on the government's short list, list of approved potential contractors. So and that's that, something uh, which is being pushed very hard by journalists, and uh, we're yet to get the full results. Hopefully the, uh, the COAT inquiry will, will uh, shed some more light on that. Indeed, it was Peter Credlin that, again, to her credit, to raise that issue at a presser this, uh, this week with Daniel Andrews, who looked a little uncomfortable once again once he set eyes on her. Um, but also, interestingly, that a bona fides are being questioned by some elements of the Melbourne press, as we've mentioned on this program before. Yet here she has the temerity to stand up and ask some questions that perhaps the regular press might have asked months ago. Uh, but mm. nevertheless, she in the last week has been able to get the attention of the Premier. And at last, we do seem to be getting some sort of insight into what might have been the thinking and where it's going. Thinking about that, Piers, what mm. about the entire elimination policy? Is it yeah. viable? Is it doable? Is it applicable in this case? Or should, as the Premier might have hinted during the week, we have to live with what we've got? Yeah, that's right. It, it's certainly that, that sort of that target of having a, uh, an average of five or fewer a day for us to be able to progress from from stage four lockdown to a version of stage three and then step down from there. It really was a very onerous uh, and and uh, it, it sort of suggested a policy of eradication rather than suppression of the virus. And various medical experts that I've spoken to and we've mentioned on this segment in the last month have actually been saying quite categorically that, that the Premier and the, uh, the state government is pursuing an unrealistic or has been pursuing an unrealistic policy of what amounts to eradication. This virus, you know, your figures that you're getting on a daily basis are only on the basis of, of testing that's done. We know that the virus can, can be asymptomatic in a lot of people, particularly young people, and it can be spread asymptomatically. So the numbers that you get, which, which only come from testing, do not tell the whole story. And as we've seen in New South Wales, it's flared up. Even New Zealand, it's flared up. And then you just have to look at the rest of the world to see that this is a virus that is very, very hard to completely eradicate. In fact, you know, maybe it might work for New Zealand because it's a special case and they got onto it early. Good management there and a very isolated country in the middle of the Pacific. Uh, other countries which have had more traffic through through uh, uh, air travel and, and, and cruise ships and the like, people returning home from overseas, all that, it's very hard to, to eradicate. So there is a revision that Premier has been talking uh, like 10 cases per day may be tolerable. He's using language like, you know, we have to be reasonable, we have to be realistic, uh, it is what it is, that kind of talk, which is kind of a, a belated recognition from the government that these, the policy of, of five or less and effectively eradication was, was really a, um, 
an unrealistic goal. Speaking of with. speaking of New Zealand as well, looks like the first flight in from Kiwi has arrived here in Australia this morning as well. So maybe that is the start of a, a bubble or an air bridge between the two countries as uh, those numbers come down. Um, PCR testing, Piers, I know this has uh, got your interest as well. How are we going there? What are you seeing? What do you think? It's a test uh, that is uh, is only about, uh, I think, about 93% reliable. So that makes it pretty reliable, but uh, there is a percentage of them that you can get false positives. And false positives mean that you know you're effectively told that you've got the virus when you don't. And then you go and waste your time by going into uh, isolation, and also can cause anguish and uh, and, and uh, other you know issues for people around you, work colleagues, family, and so on. And think they may have been exposed, but it's better than getting a false negative because a false negative would mean that you had the virus, but you were told after the test you didn't. Obviously, you've got to you've got to quarantine either way until you get your test result. If you don't think you've got it, then you go off to work or you go and hang out with your family and, and you spread it to them. So at least the way the PCR, the inaccuracy, tends to apply to, to false positives rather than false negatives. So, And that is actually the gold standard PCR test that we use in Australia. There are other antigen tests that are out there that are being used in, uh, in America, for example, and some fast tests being developed up in, up, up in uh, Brisbane that I've, I've read about. There are antigen tests. There is also talk about getting PCR tests that are much faster, but I don't think we're quite there yet with the technology. But just returning briefly, if I may, to contact tracing, one of the things that has come up with this truck driver who's uh, visited Shepparton and then not told contact tracers that he'd been there, therefore allowing the virus to sort of have a couple of extra days before it was uh, before testing began, people started to isolate and quarantine. One suggestion uh, is that. You know, if, if phone data was used um, by the tracing system, and uh, the government has switched to a digital tracing system, although on Wednesday the 14th, Premier Andrews said that the new electronic logging for tracing data was actually being used concurrently with the old system, which used things like fax and sort of manual lists and, and phone calls, uh, which I, I'm not sure why. I, mean, I, thought, I thought it was a bit ominous to hear that they were being used concurrently. That's presumably why the new, why the new system's being integrated. But it was suggested uh, in relation to the, uh, you know, the difficulties of people being 100% honest and open about where they've been uh, for a variety of reasons would be just to use their phone data because your phone data does contain you know, information about where you've actually been you know, using the GPS system that phones have built into them. Uh, the other place that data can, you know, about where you've been and what you've done is, is also through um, Facebook and Google if they wanted to prevail on those companies to provide that data. That might be going a little bit too far. Uh, it was said to me months and months ago by an IT expert that instead of having this app that, that the government was touting, which most people have forgotten about now, uh, but the COVID safe app, uh, well, the data that it was supposed to be collecting could actually be obtained from Facebook and Google quite easily. Interesting. Privacy rights and privacy matters there, I am sure, probably going to be front and centre. Piers, thank you very much indeed for your time and your insights. Very, very interesting. You, like the rest of us, I'm sure, will be having a look at what uh, Mr Andrews has got to say for himself when he fronts uh, again on his uh, regular Sunday press conference. Will be most interesting. What's your tip? What are you thinking? I think I think we're going to uh, be able to meet in Dramana, Brendan. So 22 kilometres was what the Deputy Chief Health Officer said in his presser yesterday. Uh, he hinted that that could be the distance that's... Well, that is the distance that's under consideration. So I think it's going to be mainly social uh, gestures, if you like, or concessions that the government is giving people in 
lockdown in Melbourne for now. Uh, maybe some, some businesses uh, will be uh, will be uh, further business will be exempt from restrictions. But I think what's one thing people can look forward to is a good game of golf and maybe a hit of tennis. Sounds fabulous. Uh, let's hope that the let's hope that our uh, benevolent dictator in Spring Street is kind enough to let us do those things. Well, I'm sure he's listening because I would suggest that he's probably heard of your reputation out on the tennis courts and the golf links of this beautiful part of the world, Piers, and I'm sure he's trembling at the very thought of it. So thank well, I think you. He's a keen golfer, so maybe he's wanting to get out and have a swing himself. Have a crack. Good on you, Piers. Thank you very much indeed. We'll call you up again same time next week. Appreciate your time and your contribution. Many thanks, Piers. Uh, to all PFM, yes, our special COVID-19 reporter, Piers Cunningham, on the line, keeping a lookout. And, of course, Piers is available to report in and have a look at any major developments that could be occurring in our battle with this uh, very obstinate pandemic, COVID-19. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. COVID-19 reporter for RWPFM Lockdown is Piers Cunningham. Piers, a very good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Brandon. Good to be here again. Well, it's incredible, isn't it? Uh, you know, you can hear all sorts of uh, fear and loathing in the community, those that support the Premier, of course, and he seems to have his supporters, those that feel it is a massive betrayal. You've done a lot of research on this matter. What are you hearing today? Who have you been talking to? Yeah, well, I watched the uh, watched the premier yesterday, and along with a lot of people, I think were either just shock or numb. Uh, I think increasingly numb is is a word that comes to mind to uh, describe the feeling people are getting. Uh, it's just been going on for so long, and uh, there's been promises, and in fact, we've hit the the targets that the government set. Uh, and, and arguably, we've done better than the targets that were set uh, s- several uh, several weeks ago, which was the you know the, the roadmap which was laid out. So there's really some serious questions being asked as to why we haven't just followed the roadmap. We hit the targets that were set. Now the explanation that's been given is that that we're waiting on uh, the test results that were done yesterday, and it's the northern suburbs of Melbourne that they're particularly concerned about. Again. <laughs> I have to say I'm disappointed by the messaging and by the sort of, you know, if you really look at the detail of what is being said, both by Jerome Beemeyer, who's the uh, head of contact tracing, uh, he works or reports directly to the chief health officer, Brett Sutton, who mysteriously, after being off off the, the Premier's daily TV news conference, for the last week, he reappeared today along with uh, Jerome Vimeyer, the head of contact tracing, and, of course, the Premier. And between the three of them, really, apart from just repeating what I just said about where we're waiting on the test results, we've got thousands of tests in labs being done, uh, and, and once we have those results, we'll be happier or more comfortable to uh, to make the uh, the sort of uh, announcement that, that everyone is waiting for, which is a beginning of a staged reduction in restrictions. But... The reaction you asked me about, the ex-health minister, actually, Jenny McCarkos, tweeted during the, uh, I believe it was during or very close to the time that the Premier was speaking, what a lot of people on Twitter, and I was actually just reading through before what the reaction to that tweet was, a lot of people saying, oh, she's let down the side, but she was basically saying, and I'll quote directly what her tweet was, the government is is basically suffering from paralysis in decision-making. 
So she said, uh, Victoria has met the under five threshold, which some thought was unachievable. Uh, this was a very cautious target. Six out of seven new cases are related to a known outbreak, so the risk is manageable. The set reopening is gradual and safe, so any delay is unnecessary. Well, it's that's paralysis. Yeah, that's McCarthy's, of course. And I guess mm. you could probably sort of write her off and say, well, maybe she's got a little bit of an axe to grind or something like that. But sure. I must say that, I mean, when the Premier yesterday at the press conference was challenged, he seemed to get a little bit cranky. He complained about lack of sleep. And then Sutton himself says, well, critics are not in the tent. But surely, if they're not going to be holding themselves open to account, I mean, we surely have to examine some of the thinking. Now, I do know mm. that you have been doing exactly this as well with a number of doctors doctors who are extremely concerned about basically the fundamental science and the medicine that's underwriting this particular policy. They have serious and have had serious concerns. Yeah, that's right. So I've been in touch uh, on this segment in previous weeks. We've spoken about the COVID Doctors Network work, or as it's uh, now known, the COVID Medical Network. And they've got a website, it's covidmedicalnetwork.com.au, if you'd like to have a look at that. There are also interviews with those doctors on uh, our program website, beyondinfinity.com.au. So I'd urge listeners to check out those two sources for more reading and listening. However, I, I spoke to Jeff Wells, who's the the organiser of that group of uh, senior medicos, both uh, GPs and specialists. And he basically said, like everyone, that he was really flabbergasted and numbed by uh, what has been announced today, this continual sort of putting off the inevitable. And I think that's that's where I do agree with uh, what the ex-health minister tweeted. There's this, this sort of fear of, of opening up and this paralysis in decision-making, which seems to reflect that fear, almost as if the government has fallen victim to the fear-mongering that they have used to justify their position. A lot of it has been about fear, and fear is not a good way to approach a complicated problem that faces a society, in fact, faces the world. Fear doesn't really help, and yet fear has been the tool, and it now seems to me that the fear has actually, that same fear has gripped the government they had that big failing with quarantine earlier this year. You know, they've got blood on their hands, arguably. Uh, you can say that exactly who you assign that to or how you apportion blame is, you know, maybe we wait for the results of that inquiry, which is going to be in early, uh, early November, the code inquiry into the quarantine failure. We might have a bit more of an explanation then about, you know, about how to, who to blame. Interestingly, the government brought in some of the world's toughest industrial relation laws, which include charges uh, for industrial manslaughter. Now, if you look at the detail of that legislation, it could leave government ministers and, and, uh, and health authorities, some of the, the key decision makers in the state government, uh, vulnerable to prosecution under those laws. Uh, because uh, who, were, who were the people who employed the, the, the quarantine workers who weren't given proper training how to use PPE uh, uh, and, uh, and who were put in, into uh, this, this important role without adequate uh, information being given to them. And, and then, of course, we saw the outbreak. Well, you could say that the employers, uh, the people who directed the contracts, this is one of the things the Coat Inquiry is trying to get to the bottom of, but they are actually responsible. So the government could actually be protecting their own hides. And it is noteworthy that they have had extra legal help in their representations. Apparently, they've been assigned, uh, you know, very senior councils, QCs and the like, beyond the normal legal representation that government ministers would uh, be given in such an inquiry. There is a hint there that they are 
quite concerned about legal ramifications which could flow from this, and hence their reticence to give us the clear picture. Jeff Wells today said to me, apart from expressing that he was really very, very disappointed and numbed by what he'd seen being said on Sunday by the Premier, he said that they are not responding to doctors, as was claimed in that press conference. Uh, they are responding to health bureaucrats who are government employees and not at the coalface, and they don't see the harm being done to people. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I mentioned the other day to Greg Hunt when we were speaking to him on lockdown radio that I just found it pretty outrageous uh, that Professor Brett Sutton should question him for questioning the policies because, uh, according to Sutton, Greg Hunt is not an epidemiologist, therefore not qualified. And now, of course, his other defence yesterday was, you know, you're not in the tent, you don't understand, so don't make any comments. I mean, this is mm-hmm. just outrageous. So this... You know, this is really agitating some parts of the community. Now, Tracy Cooper, who's the chair of the Mornington Peninsula Regional Tourism Board, I was hoping to get her on the program today, but unfortunately probably can't book her until Wednesday. But she's absolutely furious and was telling us last time when she was on the show a couple of weeks ago that many businesses across the Greater Mornington Peninsula are literally on their knees and they were hoping that this week at least they would probably get some sort of freedom to come back and start trading. So It'll be very interesting to see what she's got to say. So you've got this huge pressure on the Premier, and I guess it probably uh, indicates why he's getting a little bit cranky up there. Meantime, Peter Credlin, of course, uh, from Fox mm. News, her bona fides questioned by the regular journos, but at least she puts the blowtorch on and says, well, hang on, guys, where's the phone record? So those, of course, are now part of that ongoing inquiry. Absolutely. Well, she's the one who's, who's forced the Chief Health Officer, Brett Sutton, to uh, to submit some emails that he'd chosen to overlook. He says he was, you know, Barra, you know, gets over 100 emails a day, so he's not across all of them. Well, again, these were key uh, key bits of information that he should have been across as the Chief Health Officer. And so he's, that's his defence, but those emails have gone to the Code Inquiry now, which I believe is, is actually going to delay the original planned date that its findings would be handed down. It's because it's got that extra information to look at. Um, going back to Jeff Wells and the COVID medical network and there some of the comments that he made to me uh, when I spoke to him, he said that um, we're talking about, you know, this, this figure, this insistence, this sort of slavish, one-eyed insistence on sticking to these figures and the roadmap and then maybe the roadmap's not needs to be tightened up or whatever. But he said about 25% of people under 50 they get the virus, are going to be asymptomatic. So they're not going to go to, to, to one of these testing places because they are calling, they're saying to people, if you have any symptoms at all, then go and get tested. If they said to everyone, look, if you're in the north of Melbourne, you should get tested. Well, that's, that's millions of people. They don't have the capacity to do that. It would take them forever. By the time they got the results from those millions of people, the people concerned could have actually been exposed to the virus. So therefore, the results are out of date. The reason why this is significant, this this 25% of people under 50 asymptomatic if they get the virus, that is based on worldwide experience with this virus. It means that you'll never get to the bottom of it. The figures which they are basing their lockdown and their restrictions on do not account, cannot account for people who are asymptomatic. So in other words, it's like you're not achieving anything by doing this. You might as well open things up, let these businesses have a chance of survival and, and do, you know, hopefully make some, some money in the, in the lead up to Christmas and the, and the spending that goes with that, that festive season. 
and then deal with the outbreaks as they've done in New South Wales, which is this is the key thing. They have they have managed to suppress outbreaks up there quite effectively. And and why shouldn't we do that in Victoria unless the Victorian government is is genuinely not confident that their contact tracing is, is up to speed, which they vehemently denied. Indeed, uh, and it also maybe speaks to confidence as well. And again, that was an issue that Greg Hunt mentioned the other day, that it was a little bit like a horse and buggy down here when they first started, but he had a lot more confidence in the system down here now. Yeah. But again, you see, this comes around. I mean, he has his detractors, of course, does dear old President Trump, but he's been mm. saying all along, for goodness sakes, let's go down. We can cannot lock down our nation like this. We cannot lock down business. And to a degree, that seems to be resonating with some of the numbers. Now, if you look at the United States, I mean, we're approaching 80,000 new cases. This is huge. But the other incredible stat that doesn't seem to be reported is that of those close to 80,000 new cases, 871 deaths. Now, we don't want anybody dying, but there seems to be a real mismatch between the numbers of new cases presenting and this um, fatality rate. Yeah, and the explanation that I've been given for, and the same in Europe, that the, the fatalities are lower, that the virus has made a big comeback. It's probably, in, in terms of numbers per day, I think it's actually bigger than it was in the first wave earlier in the year in Europe and in North America. But the explanation that's been given is that the virus has mutated and that it is now more contagious, so more easily spread, but less deadly, which if you're a virus, I mean, does it does it help your cause to kill the host? Of Maybe course. it doesn't. And of course it doesn't. It wants to keep so, the host so alive, surely. To that's replicate. right. So it's, so it's a good way to evolve. It's an, it's a, it's a, it's an evolution or, or an adaptation or a, a mutation that makes sense. If you're a virus and you want to you want to spread yourself as widely as possible, so uh, be less deadly and uh, and yet be more contagious. So that is the explanation that's been given to me. I'm not sure that's the only explanation. This is a very complicated thing, and and it's the complexity that makes it. I guess it makes it harder to communicate to the public about it. But I think also it also makes governments more vulnerable to getting it wrong or to overdoing things. And we're in the such a different situation to to Europe. I mean, honestly, if we were in Europe, there is no way our government, any government in Europe would be allowed to have a lockdown of the magnitude and, and longevity that Victoria has uh, with our numbers. They just laugh at They just say, what a joke. What well, are you trying to do? You're trying to commit suicide. Well, in, indeed, you know, we've exceeded what the Chinese authorities did in Wuhan to get it under control there now. So long have we been in this lockdown mode as well. So where to from here then, Piers? What are we looking for? Obviously, much more pressure beginning to mount and ramp up on the Premier. Business circles, mm. eminent leaders of business putting more pressure on. Federal mm. government as well. I mean, doctors, medical opinion, science as well. Something's going to have to give, surely. What do you reckon? Well, there's going to have to be an emphasis on focused protection, a targeted approach on people and groups that are most vulnerable. So you've got to look after nursing homes. But you've also got to allow people – You've got. there has to be a recognition that there are the, – the society is not just about this one health issue. There are other things. And, in fact, and this was something that Jeff Wells uh, noted in my most recent discussions with him, was that – the mortality rate for COVID in, in Victoria right now is 1% of the state's annual deaths. So 99% of, of deaths that are happening happen because nothing to do with COVID. They're, they're heart disease, they're cancer, 
the killers that have been with us forever and which we accept and we manage and we move forward as a society we allow people to work i mean influenza kills a lot of people each year so there's there's various problems and 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 things that that we need to recognize as a society and it is worth a conversation it's worth people and i'm sure people are having these conversations they've been having them for months about what they are prepared to accept to to get their lives back and to get their livelihoods back. Uh, and, uh, and I think that, mm, go on. I, I'm sorry, Piers. Yes, I didn't mean to, to cut you off there, but also just seeing some stats in here at the Lockdown Radio Studios today that suicide rates have now suddenly peaked. They've gone up 6% in the last little while as well. So really the knock-on impact of this is now just beginning to register and be noted in other stats as well, which are very, very alarming. And I think it's, I mean, I, I was listening to, I made some notes listening to Dan Andrews' presser on Sunday, where he announced that the restrictions everyone was hoping for uh, didn't go ahead, he said this is a cautious pause, uh, that they want to see new data determine how much to open up. And he also went on to say it may be many months before we can go back to normal. He said what we're aiming for is COVID normal, um, which is not normal. So, so in other words, unless something fundamental changes with the governments in, in Spring Street, we may well be very, very slowly released from this lockdown because they're going to they're gonna apply the same cautious approach they're applying now. They said, oh, we've got to wait for this, this extra, you know, 1,500 or 3,000 tests, whatever it is, that were done yesterday or, or on Saturday to get the results through and to be able to decide on, on what degree of opening up and the, the details of relaxing restrictions that will apply based on that data. But they're gonna, it won't, they won't stop testing, so they'll always be lab tests to be done in the future going forward. They won't ever have latest stats. So there'll always be some doubt about what they're doing. But this is acceptable risk. It is about risk management, acceptable risk management. Businesses do it. I don't understand why the government of Victoria can't do it. And of course, meantime, down here on the Mornington Peninsula, we view across the bay, have a look at the Bellarine Peninsula, which is enjoying this regional freedom and once again being lauded by the Premier. We down here on the Mornington Peninsula, zero cases, one case in Frankston, one case now in Casey, one in Bayside and none out in Kingston. And yet we are still basically being locked up alongside of Metro Melbourne, a North Melbourne housing block, which is mm. basically holding the entire state and city, this city of five million people, to ransom. Seems very, very interesting. And, and you know, Brendan, a, a, a figure which I think is absolutely horrifying is that this lockdown, this stage four lockdown, which has been going, it's, it's approaching four months and it is one of the longest lockdowns in the world. It's not the longest, but it is one of the most long, the longest and most stringent anywhere in the world in response to coronavirus. It's costing the state between three and four hundred million dollars a day, and that money could be building two fully fledged, state of the art hospitals every week. Shouldn't be forgotten. This Andrews government doesn't care about the economic damage that is being wrought by their policies. Remember what they did when they were first elected six years ago. There was a tunnel planned to be built under the uh, city of Melbourne. It was called East West Link. And at the stroke of the pen, when they became government in 2014, they burned $1.1 billion. And now their replacement tunnels are blowing out, taking uh, projected to take extra years to build and cost billions more than, than uh, planned. So I think that 
it is very, very concerning that they are so focused on this one thing, not to trivialise it, not to trivialise COVID-19, but there are other things that are very important going on in the world as well, in, in, our, in our state and in our country, that have to be part of the thinking as well. And, and closing businesses and, and wiping out people's livelihoods and their savings and, and causing high suicide rate, you mentioned mental illness, self-harm, domestic violence, all these things, alcoholism, drug abuse, these are really, really big effects. And, and you know, really, we're getting to the point where they clearly outweigh the risk that the disease poses. Piers Cunningham, thank you very much indeed for your time. Obviously, a watching brief, Piers, uh, back on air Wednesday. We'll see whether we need to call you in to top us up and bring us up to speed on that. We thank you very much indeed for your hard work, uh, your research as well, and talking to the people that you do to bring us the very latest on COVID-19. As we were saying yesterday, or at least the Premier was saying, maybe as soon as tomorrow, given those numbers that are coming out of North Melbourne, he might be able to loosen things off a little bit. But uh, as you were saying, maybe not to the degree that we are all hoping and expecting. Piers, thank you very much indeed for uh, joining us on Lockdown Radio this Monday. Pleasure, Brendan.